Welcome to Fresh Cut Grass, light conversation with turf grass professionals from across the turf industry, with your hosts, Jeff Fowler and Tanner DelVal. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Fresh Cut Grass. My name is Jeff Fowler, one of your co-hosts. With me this week and every week, my co-host, Tanner DelVal. Tanner, good to have you. Glad to be here. What's new? Um, you know, I'm going to cut right to the quick of it. This, this, this episode is epic. We have a three... This will be our guest's third visit to the show. That makes him our most requested guest on fresh cut grass yeah and our number one most downloaded episode is the episode that we had with dr mcgraw on uh, army worms yeah so he's like almost as famous as you and i yeah I on say fresh cut grass <laughs> and I, I i threw that last part in there on fresh cut grass because outside of fresh cut grass you and i are just tanner and jeff that's but right. our guest is Dr. McGraw, Dr. Ben McGraw, our turf entomologist at Penn State. Ben, it's great to have you back on the show with us. Oh, man, big fan of the show. Love your show, guys. Thanks for having me back. I I, I must have spaced it. I thought I'd only been on twice, but uh, it was probably I was just starstruck on the first one. That's that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what must have happened. But I did. We already gave you fair warning. Just because you've been on, this is your third time, doesn't mean that you're going to get off at the end of of three strikes and you're out. We're still going to hammer you. No, that's totally fine. And I appreciate being on. I am now one of you guys. I have an extension appointment in my in my job responsibilities. So I love what you guys do, getting word out about different things. And I think we're going to get into it with insects and what we're seeing around. So it's such a great way to. Uh, get it out to the people in the Commonwealth. Yeah, great. Hey, Ben, let's talk personal for just a little bit first. Sure. Uh, I the reason we had to put you off um, to record a little bit later. You were over in the Big Island, overseas, the home of golf for the Open. Yes. How yeah. how how was that experience? Uh, it was awesome. It just so happened. Uh, I was in Denmark for a turf conference, the International Turf Society meeting conference. So that ha- it's like the Olympics. It happens once every four years. And it just so happened that it fell in the beginning part of the week of the 150th anniversary of St. Andrews. So I've been to St. Andrews uh, four times now. And I think a couple of times ago, we saw that this was going to align just perfectly. And the conference got pushed back a year because of the pandemic. So did the tournament. So uh, I did that and then had my family come over and meet me. But uh, now is not the time to be traveling. Just uh, trains, planes, automobiles, uh, you know, canceled flights, graveyards of luggage we, and airports we, look, all across Europe. Look, we don't want to hear about that stuff. We want to hear how good the Open, what, how that experience was. The Open was awesome, especially if you've been to St. Andrews to see it when they're hosting a major champion. I mean, they have tournaments every year with the Dunhill, but this is, uh, I think they said they had 290,000 people over the four days. Um, we were there 
Friday and Saturday and sold our Sunday tickets and and got the heck out of town uh, to do some kind of remote island hopping around Scotland, some places I hadn't been before. So it was a really cool experience. It's just, uh, you know, just an awesome experience. I don't know anybody who was there who thought it was a bad event. And I think the same on TV. It's just, it's such a special place. I mean, it's really, um, it's just got a feel unlike any other place. You know that, Jeff. Every time you and I go to Scotland, you get cancer, though. Yeah, well, well <laughs> the I'm first time I went, the first time I went to Scotland was with Jeff, and then Jeff disappeared for about three months, and then he surfaces and said, "Yeah, you know, I almost died." So we're glad you're with us. We're glad you made it. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> as 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 I tell people, it's it's better to be seen than viewed. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So so Ben, let's talk in. Let's talk. Um, why we have you on the show today. Um, let's talk about um, turf insects. Um, what what are you seeing um, this year? Um, what could we, you know, last year we had a, a invasion of fall army worms. I know we're going to talk about that, but um, what are you seeing that we need to be on the lookout for? Yeah, so that's a great place to start because uh, July is usually the deadest part of my year. And that's why I'm able to take a week off for vacation. Um, and unlike last year, you, I wasn't able to take a week off because we had uh, this caterpillar, just devastating turf. Uh, it was really odd with the fall army worm um, and, and kind of the, the timing of the destruction, most importantly. So usually, and I would say this is more like a normal year with air quotes, um, 2022 has been really dry. Obviously, it's hot and dry. And I think the dryness, especially, um, you know, insects need moisture just like we do to survive. And um, they can go into dormancy in the summertime because of heat, just like they can go into dormancy in the wintertime because of cold, uh, real survival mechanisms. There are a couple of pests that we are on the lookout at this time of the year, but generally, as far as uh, my work in cool season turf and is mostly the shoulder seasons. So when we have a lot of moisture and and pests are are bumping. Uh, so the things that I think about at this time of the year is is keeping an eye on uh, white grubs and mostly uh, the adult beetles that would be flying around. They're going to be mostly looking for moist areas to lay their eggs. So uh, we should have some very 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 small eggs and very, very small larvae that hatch from those eggs, probably in the soils right about now. Um, but I'm not really kind of, you know, either people have their controls in place or it's going to be too early for curative. So it's kind of a wait and see with those insects. Uh, fall armyworm, typically the end of the month with hurricane activity is going to bring the moths up. Uh, however, in 2021, what we saw is that activity started about, uh, you know, extremely early. So when we were actually infesting our white grub trials with adult beetles in mid-July last year, when we pulled the cans off, we had fall armyworm caterpillars inside those cans. I mean, that was probably 45 days earlier than what I would expect. So that's typically something that we see at the end of summertime into early September with, and that's kind of generally when hurricane activity, this is an insect that can't overwinter here. 
the moth has to be blown up on the wind in successive storms. So uh, that is something we're going to look for. Uh, so far, so good. I don't think we're going to have uh, apocalyptic destruction in August or early August. Maybe, you know, this could all change in September. So it's something that we're keeping an eye on. Um, the other one that this time of the year would be chinch bugs. So chinch bugs were never really a big issue when I was coming through grad school or an early professor. And uh, it really has flared up uh, in the last 10 years. Um, what we typically see bad chinch bug years is when we have these uh, warm, dry uh, springs. I think this spring was more of a normal year rather than the wet, wet springs that we've had in like 2018, 2019 even a little bit into 2020. Uh, so, you know, the the risk is is pretty high there. Uh, I know our Canadian friends, like in Ontario and the Maritimes, have really battled with chinch bugs lately. Uh, I think we're doing some things uh, with our pest management, um, you know, selecting for white grub controls that don't have chinch bug activity. And that's why we're starting to see more and more chinch bugs. Uh, so that's something I, I really think this week into next week is really when I intensify my scouting for those insects as you know the early signs of damage could show up in August and it just you know it kind of mimics drought uh, so those turf grass stands can really dry out and, and maybe you're applying water to it and it just doesn't rebound um, we typically see a lot of chinch bug issues uh, fine fescue areas. So those are naturally kind of droughty looking areas anyway. So it's kind of like something that we don't um, really kind of recognize immediately as insect damage. So yeah. So j just for our, for our listeners um, to give them a time reference um, we're, we're, we're in the first week of August um, and that gives you a little bit of a reference here in Pennsylvania Um what the kind of weather we're, that Ben's talking about. Um, but just to give you a time reference, um, we're the first week of August. True. I would imagine that people are not going to listen to this in December, but maybe if you're listening, I appreciate it. Uh, but yes, you, might, the first ben, week you might be surprised. You might be surprised how many people start listening to us with episode one and go all the way through uh, yeah. to, to learn all about everything right. we're talking about from right. beginning to end. Yes. Yes. So, uh, uh, if that's the case, or, you know, this has been a really hot and dry summer. Uh, I was looking at rain data from the spring and, you know, five to six inches in uh, State College in May. Uh, I was kind of surprised by that. That seems like a lot to me. But, um, you know, it's nowhere near what we've experienced in, you know, the 2018 to 2020 range when it was just absolutely wet. So, um, you know, we've seen some some pretty widespread damage, um, you know, Tanner's. Graduate advisor Pete Lanscoot called me, and I believe it was uh, 2016, real hot, dry year. And he, it, just at this time, you know, early August, or he said, "We've got this home lawn that's just absolutely cooked, and let's go out and look." And it was a fine fescue lawn, which is kind of unique there. You know, all one single species, and it was a 15-acre lawn, so big estate. And five acres of it were absolutely smoked by chinch bugs. I'd never seen anything like it. And I thought, oh, man, we've got to put some resources and time and energy into it. Um, they are pretty easy to control. So even that massive destruction, 
you know, we just applied a, a pyrethroid, a broad spectrum insecticide, and we have yet to find a chinch on that property again. So I was thinking, man, this is going to be a research area for the next 10 years or so. And they're, they're really pretty spotty to find. So, you know, uh, if you have native areas on a golf course that are fine fescue, um, they can attack things like Kentucky bluegrass. So they do pose an issue for home lawns, but, um, you know, bunker faces, uh, tea banks on golf courses. Uh, we see a lot of it in the golf area. And as I alluded to before, you know, our white grub products, uh, you think about the neonicotinoids, think products like Merit, if you're familiar with that, uh, and there's many other products, they generally do have some pretty good um, activity uh, against chinch bugs. So it gets in the plant, the insect pierces the plant, sucks out the fluids, and it will acquire the toxin that way. Now, a lot of people have switched away from the neonicotinoids. Um, you know, we know that we have some issues with uh, pollinator health, uh, but also for efficacy reasons, uh, the anthranilic diamides, products like acelaprin or these products that uh, are weed and feed that have the insecticide impregnated onto that granula uh, are very, very efficacious, um, very selective, very nice ecotox profiles on these um, products. Uh, very lengthy residual control for white grubs. And when we started to see a lot of people switch to those products, all of a sudden we started seeing chinch bug issues. So it might not have been something that you were um, directly controlling, but you probably had some uh, indirect effects on those chinch populations. And once we switched over to something that was much more selective for white grubs, all of a sudden chinch bug issues flare up. So, there, so there's, you're not going to get any real control with a celeprin for chinch bugs, correct? No. And, uh, you know, there's uh, a couple of products. So there's three anthranilic diamides and they all act kind of differently. Uh, so there's a celeprin, uh, which is kind of the common one for white grubs and caterpillars, really lengthy control. Then we have ferrets, which is cyanotranilipril. So the celeprin's chlorantranilipril, cyanotranilipril is primarily an annual bluegrass weevil. Uh, product. So we see that on uh, golf courses. And then there's a new product from Bear, which is Tetrino or Tetranilipril. And that product seems to have a little bit of curative activity, but, um, you know, there's kind of this, um, whether or not it would get uh, chinch bugs. So we actually did those trials this year and we did not see any activity there. I guess the good news for chinch bug control is there's lots of really cheap effective products. So, you know, any of your contact insecticides, uh, you know, these things are not going to persist in the environment very long. So you'd need to see the chinch bugs, apply it, and, and it should do a bang up job. So you, what's your take on applying, you know, we're talking things like bifenthrin, you know, stuff like that. That's, that is fairly cheap. What's your take on how often folks maybe should consider applying these materials? They don't stick around too long. You know, is that like a bi-weekly, a monthly spray? I would say one and done for the year, Tanner. I mean, these things are cheap, and I think that is the problem. And, you know, surprisingly, um, you know, with past um, use of insecticides, especially in the golf environment, you know, you have something cheap, like, hey, we're putting out a fertilizer this week. Hey, we're putting out a growth regulator this week. Why don't we throw something in the tank? And uh, that did come back to bite us with the annual bluegrass weevil. Uh, the southern chinch bug, which is a problem in Florida, uh, has developed resistance to a bunch of insecticides just because of that strategy. Now, that insect will have near continuous generations. So, 
I'm not going to say that it, it almost warrants that you need to make those applications frequently, um, but you know, you're basically targeting different generations, but because it reproduces it or has so many generations so quickly, uh, it's very prone to resistance. Now the insect that we're dealing with here in, you know, transition zone, cool season turf and north uh, is the hairy chinch bug. We should have two generations per year. Uh, so right now at this time of the year, there's eggs, there's nymphs, there's adults present. What's going to happen is they're going to overwinter as an adult. Um, so, you know, they're, they're coming through their second generation. But even then, I really like to work in a curative sense with these insects. It's cheap. I would want to see the insect, whatever scouting is telling me, and then make the application. And as I said, they're probably one of the easiest things that you can control. Uh, our fall armyworms is very similar too. Same products work really well. If you see them, these products are not going to persist very long in the environment. So scouting is essential. Understanding what you have is essential. And then just making that one application. <clears throat> so on the market, there are, when we talk, let's just look at bifenthrin, for instance. I used to mm -hmm. sell materials years ago. And I know that there are granular formulations out there as well as liquid applications. Um, I guess what, what's your take on the granular materials if folks are using some of them? They almost have, like I have applied them, they're almost like sand when you apply them. It's very, very, very small prilled material. A lot of the ones that I've used anyway, that are strictly, they're not on a fertilizer, they're just straight bifenthrin. Yeah. And um, with the liquid materials, if which I imagine most people, if you are applying bifenthrin, most of it's going to be liquid applied. Um, what's... A, a general recommendation as far as liquid carrier for that, you know, mm. half, half a gallon, a gallon, two gallons per thousand, I guess more is better to get better coverage. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, normally, and I do a lot of my work in the golf course environment. So really the, the issue of carrier volume, whether it's um, you know, and we speak in terms of thousand square foot, whether it's one gallon per square foot or 44 gallons per acre, uh, or two or 87 gallons per acre. Um, you know, it seems to be about what you're targeting. Large areas like fairways, people are always gonna wanna go with the lower carrier volume so they don't have to come back and fill up so many times. Uh, we do most of our testing in small plot trials with these insects. And I would say if there's any sort of default carrier volume, that's always gonna be two gallons per thousand square feet or 87 gallons per acre. So uh, that seems to be pretty good. You might get away with not having to wash it in. Um, you know, I think the people who are going to have chinch bug issues are going to be uh, out of play areas on golf courses. So these fine fescue areas, uh, really thatching home lawns. Uh, I don't really see too much issues other than that. It's not a big concern for athletic fields. So if it's in the home lawn situation, you could probably um, get away with just doing the higher carrier volume, the two gallons per thousand square feet, and maybe not even watering it in. These insects are going to be in the thatch. So I think, you know, and a pyrethroid like bifenthrin, as you mentioned, uh, is going to bind very tightly to any sort of organic matter. So it's not, I, I wouldn't worry about it moving too far. So, you know, if you're keeping score at home, you got to find the insect, know that it's out there make one really, you know, accurate diagnosis and then one application, uh, I, I think it, it's fairly foolproof. Now, something that you also mentioned that I 
you know, kind of think about when I'm driving down the highway all the time from research sites is things like these formulations, liquid versus granular. Um, I would probably prefer a liquid, although I don't have any evidence to say that the granular is not as effective. It's just something that is going to coat the insect. So if you're putting it out on a prill, you're broadcasting that, that's probably what most um, residential managers or, or, you know, lawn care operators are probably doing. It's just amazing to me that that would work. You would think that the liquid would need to have that coverage and coat the insect. You know, we're, we're trying to deliver that toxin to the insect and allow it to move through its body. Well, I, I also think, you know, I've worked, you know, with closely with some lawn care operators and been in the lawn care industry for a while. And I think some of the applications that folks are making with granular materials are not because they see the pest, but it's basically it's time for us to put it down and this yeah. is how we do it. Um, a lot of it stems in the issues that I see when people spray and trying to target insects or diseases. And I talk about it just about in every talk is the importance of carrier volume. And a lot of folks, especially in the lawn care industry, the if they're using ride-on sprayers or even backpack sprayers, they're using materials typically for weed control. And you don't necessarily need to get such high carrier volumes for when you're applying those materials. And if you don't change your nozzles out and, and or go really slow and change, you know, how much liquid you're putting down per thousand square feet or per acre, you're probably not going to get the control that you desire. I, I think it's most important with diseases and then second by insects. So that's my personal opinion. Um, but I think it's something that gets overlooked a lot. Someone will go out there with a 32 ounce per thousand, um, you know, a quart per thousand square feet and they're going to try to spray fungicides or insecticides and they don't get the control that they want because I don't think they're getting the coverage that's needed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's so much in, in formulation science. I mean, it's, I used to work with these people and just how they get these things to move throughout the environment is really, really interesting stuff. But, um, you know, and I will say that we don't really have a lot of information uh, from, you know, the like the chemical efficacy trials that we do unbiased uh, university data, you know, on things like, um, you know, the value of these uh, two different formulations. So usually it becomes like a problem. One of the things, and we're thinking, you know, this ties into what's coming up with white grubs in September, you know, you have a white grub problem, you have outbreak, you have predators, uh, digging at the turf, a lot of people would like to use the uh, organophosphate dialox, you know, trichlorophon, right? So uh, there's a couple of different formulations. One of them is a liquid and one of them is a granular. And people would report like, I don't, I don't get any control with the liquid, the SL, the 420 SL. And, uh, you know, it seems odd to me because it's the same amount of active ingredient going down. But sure enough, I mean, we've done trials and, and we see that there is a difference. Um, so that's a that's an example of a curative not moving based on its formulation. Um, you know, with preventives, like we talked about, um, applying in advance for white grubs with a product like a celeprin that should last the whole year, we do see some differences with that. And uh, you know, it's high levels of control, but the granular really performs better when it's put out in April versus May versus June or July. So that granular, you know, you got to think about that as well. If it's it, depending on how that granular is formulated, it might need to weather, break down, be taken up by the plant that way. But that's only, you know, a select 
few insecticides that actually have residual activity that would be applied in a preventive uh, stance. And I'd also say, you know, props to companies like uh, Syngenta that, you know, value that research. I mean, I think it would be valuable if I had the product, I'd want to know how to use it to the best of um, that it can be. So, uh, but, you know, oftentimes once a product is released into the market, it's, it's kind of, you know, goes into this black box of, of learning how it works. So I guess transitioning a little bit, Jeff, is there anything that you wanted to ask on that front? No, no, go ahead with the line you're going on. I, I have a couple of questions, but they're on a different topic. So we'll go with your line first. Yeah. So, well, I want to circle back a little bit. Actually, I'll just touch on this. Let's let's talk about sampling. I think that's important. Um, if folks are curious, if they have, they see damage. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, it's it's the beginning of August. My lawn. Now, I'm typically like my lawn's like the best on the block. <laughs> That's the kind of person I am. I'm going to tell you right now, my lawn has never looked as bad as it has does right now. Like absolutely horrible. And I was out. I could have swore that it was chinch bug damage in my lawn. It looks, I mean, I've seen it before. It looks just like that. I haven't watered a lot. It's been very dry. It looks like the only thing affected for the most part are the fine fescues that are in there. It's kind of a mix, but uh, I went out and I cannot, did not find a single chinch bug. Um, so, I mean, it, it could be, it doesn't look like disease to me. Maybe it's just a fine fescue that doesn't really tolerate these hot and dry conditions. But if I want to go out and sample four chinch bugs, do you have and or other surface feeders that we'll talk about? I mean, what's what's the way that you would suggest people if you want to go out and find something? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, you know, I would imagine we have a range of experience on this podcast. So I would say starting at the very basic level is um, doing a Google search and see what these insects look like. They're very small. Um, you know, if I had to guess, and I don't know this off the top of my head, although I could look this up. I would imagine that they're about an eighth of an inch long. So very, very tiny. Uh, they're kind of black and white. Uh, they fold their wings across each other. Um, and so that's a good starting point is to, you know, familiarize yourself with what it looks like. That being said, there are a few things in the turf grass environment that could look just like them. Um, you know, I always receive photographs. Um, you know, the, the smartphone is probably the best thing for me an extension uh is that i just get inundated with photos and we can really you know with a clear image we can really um identify what these things are pretty pretty quickly um if you do have damage uh and it is caused by these insects you know the great thing about insects is they're you know compared to diseases they're very visible with the naked eye even though that these are small insects if it is an outbreak, there's usually a bunch of them. So it's very readily seen. Uh, if you're sampling during the middle of the day, you know that insects are cold-blooded. They're going to be really active with increased temperatures. So they're going to scurry quite a bit. Um, I would recommend going to these, you know, unlike diseases where we sample outside of the diseased area, uh, these insects often hang around in these kind of melted out areas. So it looks a lot like heat stress. So I'd be going... Tanner, if it was your lawn, that the first thing I'd want to know is what are the grasses in there? Uh, are these some of the preferred foods of these insects? Um, and then I would go into these kind of melted out areas and just pry apart the turf to see if there are, you know, signs of increased insect activity. Uh, so there's a lot that you can do with the naked eye. Obviously, if you could catch them, put them in a vial or something like that so you could 
throw them in the freezer. You know, that's uh, usually instant death or, you know, throw them in the freezer for an hour, then pop them out and take a photo of them. It's much easier that way uh, to keep them still so that you can get a good image rather than uh, scurrying. Sometimes we can we can see them on videos as well. So if you can take a video of that and send it to me, that, that's a usually a good way to go. Um, the other thing is uh, we could do some more advanced types of scampling, kind of like uh, I wouldn't think that many homeowners would have an old school cylinder or coffee can with no bottom on it, but you could drive that into the ground. If you have a metal cylinder that you can jam into the ground about two inches down and then just start filling it up, you know, take like a half gallon plastic milk jug, fill that with water, and then just start filling that cylinder with water. They will float right out of the turf. Uh, and, and so you can collect them off the surface of the water. That's kind of more something that is done for research and counting purposes. Um, I think for the average homeowner or even golf course uh, manager, it would just to be pry apart the turf in these areas that kind of have melted out and, and see what you can find there and see if you can collect some of the insects from the area. Do they still even sell coffee in metal cans? I don't know. I mean, we've got so many of them. Uh, and then we actually have some metal cylinders just for chinch bugs. Uh, so I inherited those from my predecessor, Paul Heller. And uh, so, you know, we that's where we get them. I don't even know where you get a metal. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look the next time I'm at the store. I don't even I don't even know if they make coffee or if they even put coffee in metal cans. I know you probably I think it's all plastic and bags. Be careful taking off the bottom. I'm sure that that <laughs> is gonna sever a finger or two. <laughs> Do you need to add is is soap ever something that you add to water to 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 get kind of irritation of the insects of any of any kind that you ever sample for or no? All right, so now already we've got more uses for the cylinder, uh, although not overly important for caterpillars. So our fall army worm that we talked about, um, you know, it wouldn't be bad. Um, I, we haven't really seen any evidence of eggs, uh, egg laying for the fall army worm, but uh, the next thing we could look for would be larvae and you could apply a soap, a diluted soap solution uh, to the turf. You could put that in the cylinder and then you'd have a pretty good estimate of what's in that area and you wouldn't lose anything, but just applying a soapy water solution over the turf, you know, maybe in a three foot by three foot area, if there's caterpillars in there, they'll shoot right out of the turf, like almost immediately. Um, chinch bug with the water alone will, will be fine. Uh, and they, they come out pretty immediately. You might have to rustle the, the turf up a little bit, but uh, that's one that really doesn't need uh, any sort of soap to irritate them out of the turf. But Excellent, excellent sampling method for caterpillars. So I had gone out into my lawn and I was on my hands and knees for about 20 minutes and I failed to find a single chinch bug or anything that I thought. I mean, I found insects, but they weren't typical turf problematic insects. Yeah, I, I'm sure with that kind of intensity, I think we, we can feel good about that. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> I'm not, probably... I'm not, I'm, I, yeah. I'm more worried about the other side of it where it's so hot, it's so dry, and this damage looks a lot like it. And, yep. and I think that's the case too with bill bugs as well. You know, these beetles, uh, these weevils that, uh, you know, have larvae that bore through the stem, that kind of damage also appears to be very drought like. So those are the two um, that, you know, have the potential to flare up because we're just not diagnosing it properly. So do you yeah, want to? So, so go ahead, Jeff. No, that's, I was just going to say, Ben, you know, the, 
I'm, I'm thinking about your research and, you know, in like, I know Tanner's research and other research that we do variety trials or, or species trials. Um, you know, we can plant Bermuda and blue together and, you know, we can do all, you know, we want to try wear and tear on fine fescue or all those. Um, we can plant them and wait for them to come up and then do our research. But, you know, do you, do you have like vials of these insects in your freezer? And like when you want to do a trial on white grubs, you just go out and dump them in the in the in the research trial and do, I, do I chemical trials. Was, how how does wish, that work? Tell I wish me. it were that easy. I was thinking, man, that would be awesome if you could just inoculate them like that. But then I was thinking, man, like winter wouldn't kill off these things either. So I guess it would only be a short term benefit. Uh, we actually do a lot out in the field uh, for a couple of reasons, but um, uh, we depend on natural populations for a lot, which is, um, you know, kind of ulcer inducing, you know, especially when you have years where it's like uh, very low activity. Um, but, you know, we, we do a lot of scouting to make sure that we have good densities. Uh, other things like chinch bugs. So like, you know, they're very easily collected. We collect them with kind of leaf blowers that we use in reverse as a vacuum. Uh, annual bluegrass weevil, we might do the same thing uh, so that we can get, you know, certain stages or really kind of uniform population. Uh, so it's a mix. I, I think our friends in pathology would be able to isolate a fungus inoculate spores and, and get, you know, really good data that way. And, and we do do that to some extent with some of our insects, but a lot of times we want to see, um, you know, how these controls work against a natural population because there are certain nuances, you know, insects that migrate in over time. That's, you know, not everybody's going to be present at the party all at the same time. So you need to see, you know, how these products are going to behave in a more natural environment. That's, as natural as we can. I had pulled up, uh, kind of transitioning a little bit, within extension on the vegetable side, we do some monitoring for fall armyworms, which are obviously a pest of sweet corn. And I just looked, they do, uh, they're sampling that cooperators around the state do. And we have, I don't know, about 20 to 25 different farms that have, you know, these traps that are out there to collect the adult moths. And it looks like all around the state, as of recently, the numbers are very low, either zero or in Lycoming County, there was 15 in one trap this week. But other than that, they're all background levels, it seems like to me. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, there's one, uh, at Ohio State, I won't give them the credit to put the V in front of it, but uh, at Ohio State, they also have a similar network that I was looking at because, you know, you think we're kind of on the same latitude and these moths are coming up from the south. Uh, so that's another one that I watch. Um, there were some databases that were maintained by uh, somebody in entomology who's recently retired, Shelby Flesher, and uh, the pest watch. So I was hoping that somebody would pick that up after he retired, as that is a good good indicator for us but i saw the same thing i saw very low trap counts in ohio um so it you know this is what i would expect i think 2021 was just so unusual and it was so devastating because it was so early um, yeah this was about this was about the time last year 
that we started to see those numbers in those traps increase drastically on the fall army worms. Yeah, it was even before that, Jeff. I mean, it was yeah. people were losing their minds at this point of the year last year. And, and then the talk became, will they have a second generation? Uh, and there was plenty of time for it, but we just didn't see it happen. Um, you know, in, in those moths too, you know, I get a lot of talks outside of the country too and in Canada and wasn't really a big problem in Ontario, even though they had plenty of time to develop to moss and then kind of head north again. So it was uh, early. It was probably a little bit more traumatic because it was hot and the turf is struggling. We're not into that September where we have that rainfall where the turf can kind of outgrow them and, and they will outgrow it. I mean, three weeks to four weeks later, those turf areas that were smoked were right back to normal. So actually look better than they did before they were damaged. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know the if ones, I saw that. You see the all the weeds. They they don't take out the weeds. So you see like weeds for about three weeks and then it kind of comes back in. So maybe it is. Maybe there's some there's some value in it. that they. Well, I think the ones I saw in Southwest Pennsylvania were um, when they came back, they came back um, better than they were when they were gnawed off. It's almost yeah. like it was a almost like it was a phrase mowing, um, you know, yeah. just, um, forced it to grow even more. So, yeah, that's something. I mean, the other really interesting thing is I was asked to give a talk to the Marcellus Shale Coalition. So these people who manage these fracking sites and I thought, wow, this is wow. Never thought I'd be doing this. But uh, they, you know, in the lead up to the talk, you know, which is all virtual. Uh, a bunch of people managing these sites all over the place. Uh, you know, they said, uh, well, you're going to provide some information on the cutworm. I was like, cutworm? I thought we were talking armyworm. And then I said, hold on a second. Can you send me photos of these devastated sites? So basically these banks that are holding water uh, are all seeded and they got wiped out. And it was actually a yellow striped armyworm, which overwinters in places like Kentucky. So uh, we do have a couple of different army worms that can be problematic. And it was just pretty uh, crazy that these two things are essentially co-occurring or co-outbreaking at the same time. So something to be on the watch for as well. I guess uh, mostly for our listeners, you know, a caterpillar is a caterpillar. And if it's consuming in packs of other caterpillars, then it's probably a problem. So the other insect that I was just going to see if we could briefly touch on was the bill bugs. Um, Cause I do, and I have seen them and it seems like to a lesser degree, even than chinch bugs, but it does, they are out there. So I don't know if you want to briefly talk about their life cycle, when you'll find them, uh, how to look for them. Yeah. So uh, bill bugs are pretty common across, uh, you know, the Commonwealth across the region. Uh, so we have the bluegrass bill bug, which is, Probably the most common. Um, it's not a really high on my radar. You know, my uh, colleagues in the Midwest deal with it a lot. My colleagues in the Intermountain West uh, deal with bill bugs a lot on golf courses. Uh, I see in the golf course environment, I think bill bugs are caught in the crossfire of a lot of our early season programs for things like annual bluegrass weevil. Um, you know, it, this is an insect or these are an insect because they're really a complex. There's many different bill bugs uh, that can be problematic on higher heights of cut. And so therefore that brings in athletic fields, home lawns and golf courses. Uh, 
but for the most part, we don't really see a lot. And, and especially I, I don't, maybe it's not that we find them on shortcut turf and that's kind of the focus on golf, but we don't see much in the golf environment this year. I've had a few, um, calls from athletic fields uh, where it looks like drought. They're starting to thin out. Uh, basically this beetle, like the annual bluegrass, we will, will chew a notch in the plant, layer eggs inside the plant and they stem bore uh, early on. And then they pop out and they feed on the crown. So uh, a good way of looking for billbug damage is taking that turf and just pulling at the turf. You know, we even refer to it as the tug test, but if you take, a clump of that turf that might be a little bit droughty and you pull on it, if it breaks off at the crown, there's a real good indication that it's bill bugs, whereas droughty turf will kind of come out by the roots. Uh, the next thing that you could look at too uh, would be if there's frass, so their excrement is kind of left in the stem. So the stems are hollowed out as the larva feeds and you see this like kind of sawdust like material um, that is present. So those are a couple of things that you can look at as far as bill bugs. Uh, the, the main one that I'm concerned about is the hunting bill bugs. Uh, this kind of does, um, has a little bit different biology. It's a little bit sloppier. This is something that we thought of as a warm season pest, um, but it will feed on cool season turf as well. So the big problem in, in places like Indiana right now. Uh, but for the most part, you know, these are the bluegrass bill bug comes out as an adult in springtime, whereas um, the hunting billbug can overwinter as a larva or as an adult. So, does a celeprin give any residual effect on billbugs? Ah, uh, yeah, I think a celeprin does a really good job on billbugs, and I think that's also why we don't see a whole lot of it. Um, you know, the occasional bunker bank uh, that might be something about um, placement of the toxin itself. Uh, and, you know, athletic fields, maybe, um, they're using different products than that, but I, I think that's a large reason why we don't see a whole lot of it is the adoption of the anthranilic diamonds. Then one of the things I get asked, um, not often, but normally a couple times a year, I get the question and that is I have some insect damage, um, whether it's grubs or, you know, chafers or chinch bugs or whatever's causing that damage. Um, what, what do I, what do I need to do to help my turf recover? Um, you know, so the damage is done other than controlling the insect. Um, yeah. what's going to happen to that grass that, you know, the grubs that just absolutely destroyed uh, a 12 by 12 area, what's going to happen to it? What do we need to do? Yeah. So that damage is really occurring at a pretty good time of the year where we usually have ample moisture. Uh, so if it's grub damage, I, I mean, for most insect damage, I would say I'd be thinking about, um, you know, raking those areas out and thinking about planting them. Uh, you know, the it, grub damage, uh, we'd probably see mid September into maybe as far out as November. It's really the vertebrates that come in and dig it up that I'm most concerned about causing that damage. So with that in mind, um, you know, end of the year, rake it out and, and just put in uh, some new and improved grasses, I guess, or something that matches the stand. Maybe that's more important. Uh, I do think that, you know, grubs, it would be nice to probably control them because as they feed, they're still going to be in the soil. Right. Um, I'm not too worried about the direct damage that grubs cause. But again, it's that vertebrate damage that they can come in and dig it up. 
Um, yeah, a lot so. of times, a lot of times, just grub damage will grow back because it'll reroot. Yeah. Um, it's like harvesting sod and laying it back down, and you know it'll come back. But um, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm more concerned with the things that cause damage, like annual blue rat weevil causes damage probably at the worst time of the year. So you have damage in the first week of June, and that might be turf that struggles for the rest of the summer. So right. you might be looking at that damage for four months. Uh, things that happen at the end of the year, you know, European crane fly, white grubs. Yeah, it can be bad, but usually uh, you have a few free passes at that time of the year, with the exception of uh, people who are getting fields ready for high school sports. I think that's the that's the one concern, not only uh, the aesthetics of it and the timing relative to the activities, but, uh, you know, the safety consideration of insects severing a root system and having stability issues. That's that's what Tanner and I talk to people about all the time. It doesn't the aesthetics are secondary. Um, right. It's really it's really about the safety of the, and, and playability for the yeah. for the young, especially in high school sports for the young athletes that are coming out there to play on it. Yeah, absolutely. Tanner, do you have anything else we need to talk to Ben about before we close him out? No, I don't I don't think so. The only thing I'll mention about white grubs this this year, it seems like every other year, every couple of years in the when the adults are out flying around, sometimes you you tend to see a lot of one species. And I don't know if you've seen that. Like this year, to me, it seemed like Oriental beetles were like all over the place. Oh man, Oriental beetles are such a great one. I've had years of having the pheromone on me and and having these beetles fly around and <laughs> at me. Like anytime you work in a in a chemical ecology lab, you are contaminated for years. So. Uh, it's one that I had a lot of experience with in graduate school, uh, being east of here. They basically stop on the mountain range. So they're in Lewistown, but they're not in State College. So, really? Uh, my technician, Danny Klein, uh, will say that he pulls them out of his pool all day long, and we just don't see them over the mountain. Uh, so it's kind of, that's their distribution there. Um, you know, Japanese beetles came out hot and heavy, I think, in the beginning of the July, and then I went away, so I don't really know what happened in the middle of the month, but we were struggling to find them. Uh, so, you know, I might have an ulcer, puke some blood over trials here. Uh, but, you know, I think that's that's kind of the big dominant one. And that's only because we see it so readily on other plants. I think northern mass chafer is another big one that we have here. Uh, but Japanese beetle really dominates in this part of the world. So I would I would suspect it's the same thing in your part of the world, Tanner, where it's oriental beetle. Uh, they're going to fly under cover of darkness. So you'll see Japanese beetle all day. And then all of a sudden you have all these grubs and, and they tend to lay eggs in the same areas co-occur with Japanese beetle. So yep. watch those irrigated areas, especially this year. I mean, these insects are going to be forced into tighter and tighter areas as moisture becomes less and less. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure having you back on the show. Yeah, it's um, fun. Really appreciate you joining us. Um, but, you know, you know the tradition here at the end of the show, and that is um, we throw three random questions. We get three random answers. It's a little game we like to call three strikes and you're out. I thought, what um, happened to the ephus? Well, so that's the ephus pitch. That right. The first one used to be the ephus pitch for you. Um, because you're one of the few people that even knows what the word ephus means in in the reference of baseball. I saw an amazing one the other day, Jeffrey. On you got to find it on Twitter. I, uh, it was awesome. So it's it's out there. 
I'll I'll look for it. All I'll right. look for it. But my my question number one is: I know you've traveled um, a considerable amount for turf related things um, in your career and in your life. Um, I'm going to steal this question from Tanner. So Tanner, you're going to have to cross this one off your list. Um, your favorite place to visit, and while you're visiting that favorite place, what's your favorite food to eat while you're there? Oh, this is totally recency bias, but um, <laughs> you know, St. Andrews is one of my favorite places on earth for sure. Uh, so if, it, if it's St. Andrews, I'll give you two answers. I'll say St. Andrews and Haggis. I, I love Haggis. And I think people find that hard to imagine, but it is something I could eat every day. Uh, but I'm also from Maine, so I, I love going home to Maine and, and I'd say lobster. So I'm going to give you two answers. Well, let's talk about this Vegas answer, um, because I've been places with you where your your tendencies um, have kept you out longer than they probably should have. Oh, absolutely. How do you sleep when you're in Vegas? Oh, I don't sleep in Vegas. I, I try to avoid that. I was actually in Vegas this year. Um, you know, it's just kind of. It, it doesn't agree with me now that I'm an older individual. It was the first time I didn't even go to the strip in Las Vegas. But yeah, as a younger man, I went to Vegas a lot. And uh, yeah, you don't sleep. Save that for when you get home. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Tanner, what do you have? All right. This should be an easy one for you. All I'm going to say is bourbon, scotch, or beer? Oh, it's got to be beer. I mean, I do like bourbon. Uh, I try to like scotch. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I like bourbon, though. I do like bourbon. Uh, I think I, I would like to be a sophisticated scotch drinker, but, uh, you know, and I can appreciate it. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely beer. Even then, I'm trying to cut back on that, too. Fair enough. Are you like, do you like IPAs? Oh, definitely. So I would say my two drinks would be IPAs or gin and tonics. I, I discovered gin late in life, just like olives. I in the last two years, all of a sudden I like olives. So uh, like black yeah. or green? Green, green, okay. definitely. Pimento. You you know where that comes from, right, Ben? What's that? That comes from getting old. Yeah, you know, I supposedly your taste buds change every seven years. So I found olives and I eat a crazy amount of olives now. And, Gin, I never liked gin at all, but uh, somebody who doesn't drink much was like, here, try this. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So, <laughs> you know what they do in overseas when you're in the UK? They serve it in a margarita glass. I don't really appreciate that, though. <laughs> well, I know that I have, um, we've tried the other together, actually. Um, the Scotch the Scotch one, we had the connoisseur of all connoisseurs. Uh, absolutely. At- at some little dive um, near Loch Lomond um, in Scotland, um, Tanner, that was a, that was an experience that we could make an entire show out of um, with Doctor McNitt. Um, Andy McNitt is the master in that realm for sure. He um, he 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 had us all tasting, and he he would taste it first, and then tell us what we were going to taste and. That night lasted too long, probably. <laughs> anyway, um, Ben, that was a that's a that was your second. Um, that was kind of an ephus, but we'll yeah, we'll totally we'll let, you, we'll let you off. Um, have we asked you about this the cigar smoking? You've been no. on the show so much. All right, so no. all right, so 
imagine in the world that no one is offended by smoking a cigar. Okay. Okay. Who are the five people, dead or alive, that you want to sit down and smoke a cigar with? Five people, dead or I'm going to have to write this out. Um, Do you need me to make flashcards for you? No, I, I'm not a cigar <laughs> smoker. Um, Neither am I, but that doesn't matter. Right, right. It's not the cigar it's right. the 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 act of sit. Who would you? Who are the five people you would want to sit down and drink a beer with? Who are the five people you would want to sit down and drink right. a gin with? Yeah, uh, old Tom Morris for sure. Um, I mean, for the relevance to to uh, you know golf, uh, Ted when, Williams. When, I got to go with Ted Williams. I'm writing this down. Uh, Red Sox fan, obviously. Pretty amazing life, World War II, all that. I think it was World War II. Yeah. Yep. It? Yep. Um, pilot. Uh, I got to do somebody musical. Bob Marley. Uh, I think he would be fascinating. We've had uh, Bar- we've had that answer before. Uh, Bob, Ted Williams, old Tom Morris. Um, I might have to go. I hate to use two Morrises, but young Tom Morris would be cool, too. Uh, in the sake of time, because I'm drawing a blank, young Tom Morris. And I feel like I got to do an entomologist, like an old school entomologist, maybe C.V. Riley or something like that. I think that would cover all my bases. See, some 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 guests we would argue with and we would say we would put young Tom Morris and old Tom Morris together. And that would be just count as one and make you come uh, up with another and make you come up with another one. But we'll let you off the hook because right. it's. Because it's the third time you've been on the show. Sounds good. Sounds. I need to think that out. That was very rushed. So that was that was that was a good set of answers, though. Um, when you were over this last time, did you did you get over to see old Tom Morris's grave again? I did not. I mean, we tried to avoid town. I took my daughter to a bookstore, and that was about it. The Dunvegan was people were spilling out of it, and there's probably uh, and we were staying north of town. So if we were in town, I probably would have. It's always such a cool cool yeah. site and just like just I imagine, an awesome city i imagine with the with the open being there that the line to see old tom morris's grave would have been um clear back through town and around the corner twice i don't know i mean they don't sell, sell booze there so that would probably yeah, limit that's, it true. that's 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 true that's true ben it's been great having you back yeah, on man. the show awesome um, to see you guys you gotta see each other in person yeah, we need to do that. We appreciate you joining us again. Um, I'll remind our guests that or our listeners that they can uh, get a hold of Tanner and I at our email address. That's freshcutgrass at psu.edu um, for um, any questions that you have for our guests or any episodes that you'd like for us to um, do here on Fresh Cut Grass. They can shoot us an email. Um, we read that on a fairly regular basis. So um, we'll, we, we respond pretty quickly. Tanner, um, another great show. Appreciate you um, being along. How about taking us out for the day? Yep. Just want to echo my thanks to uh, Dr. McGraw for joining us. <clears throat> Covered a lot of topics today, and I'm sure this will be another heavily downloaded uh, podcast. So again, thank you very much, and we'll talk to everyone next time.